Hello and welcome to the River's Edge Church Podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Dave Johnson, will bring a message of hope through our series, Moses, Faithful Servant. We're excited to share another powerful episode with you today. And now, here's Pastor Dave. We've been on a series looking at Moses and the Exodus. Sort of both and, you, you can't separate the two. Moses is the leader of the Exodus and we're looking at what Moses has done. And last week we looked at the 10 plagues and we looked at them in 10 plagues of decreation. And so what I hope to do over, these, over two weeks of looking at 10 plagues, like what pastor teaches on the 10 plagues for two weeks, I don't know, um, is, it's almost like a sheet of paper, right? One side, one view of the 10 plagues, is like these are the 10 acts of decreation. God is undoing all of creation to show Egypt, to show Israel he's in charge. But then if you were to like flip over that side of the paper, there's like a whole other scheme to the 10 plagues that God is doing and is really, really important. And that is judging the gods of Egypt. And that's what we're going to get into today. So I want you to think about this scenario for a second. You're a Hebrew person. You just were born into slavery in Egypt. You're just born into it, okay? Your family, all they've done for years is they're people who make bricks. They're people who cook for all the other workers. They're people who support the acts of Pharaoh. And and as a young Hebrew person, you probably would have heard of Yahweh, your God, However, every day you're seeing the symbolism of the Egyptian gods, and they're triumphing over you. They're more powerful than you. The Egyptian gods, like Pharaoh is the son of Amon-Ra, the sun god. Like, you have the son of God as your ruler, and all of a sudden it's like, well, they're in charge. And for 400 years, like, they're in charge, and we're not, and we're enslaved by these people. After a while, you might begin to buy into the lie that the Egyptian gods are more powerful than Yahweh. After a while, it, it, it could kind of just weigh on you. It's like, well, look at us. Like, we've got nothing. We're poor slaves. Like, we, we literally have no power. We have nothing we could do. <sighs> Maybe their gods are actually real. Maybe their gods actually have more power than my God. You, you never know. Maybe that's what they thought. Maybe the Egyptian gods are stronger. So as God brings his people out, one of the chief things he has to do is show his character. Show his character as God above all other gods, as the God who is in control of the entire world. And so last week, that's kind of what the one side of the page we looked at was the 10 acts of decreation. God decreated the world in just the same 10 words that God used to create the world. God undoes them in the 10 plagues. But now we're going to see how he triumphs over the Egyptian gods. So we're going we're gonna to be in Exodus chapter 7 through 12, and we're going to skip around a little bit, but Exodus 7, 1 through 5 is where we're going to start. So if you've got your Bibles and you want to flip there, go ahead and do it. If not, it'll be up on the screen. Um, if you're taking notes, then it's actually on your notes. So <laughs> there you go. Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. 
Then I will lay my hand on Egypt with mighty acts of judgment, and I will bring out my divisions. My people, the Israelites and the Egyptians, will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Let's pause there for a second. There's two things that I want to cover. One, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. What's the deal with that? I get tons of questions on this. I, I totally understand. If you read the plagues of Pharaoh, what happens is all the first plagues, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. There's actually four different ways to talk about God's heart or Pharaoh's heart being hardened. But Pharaoh was so stubborn because he believed himself to be God that his heart would be hardened the more and more God worked. And the more and more God worked, the more and more he realized he wasn't in control and the more and more hard his heart became. In other words, the more resistant to God he became. And then at the very end, Pharaoh was like about to let them go. And God is like, no, 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 no. I need to finish what I started. And then it says he hardened his heart. It's only at the end where it says that, which is really interesting. So my point with the whole hardening the heart thing is that if you think you're great, if you already think that you're God, of course you're going to be resistant to the Lord. And that's what Pharaoh, that's Pharaoh's whole problem, is he already believed himself to be God. Some of us have this problem, right? <laughs> we already believe ourselves to be God. So hearing about God and hearing about his word is like, no, I'm in charge. What, do you want some deity to have control of my life? Nope, I'm in charge. And so it already becomes a difficult sell. But here's the, the first fill-in, and here's one of the things I want you to get. Moses is also is called like God to Pharaoh because he's obedient to God. And that's it. That's all Moses is. He's obedient to God. Moses couldn't float. Moses didn't have special powers. Moses was like utterly weak. And even in Moses' objections, he was like, God, I can't do this. Send someone else. Moses did not have the power. His only power was found in his obedience to God. And therefore, he became like God to Pharaoh. As I read this, I wondered for us here in this room, it, it, it sort of seems like God, not seems like, all through scripture, God chooses human partners to work through and to work with. God wants you as his human partners to do his work in all parts of the world, in, in your workplace, to do his work everywhere. God wants you as a human partner. All you need to do is be obedient to him. And in your obedience, you will be like God to other people. In the New Testament, we call that Christ-likeness. That as you're obedient to Jesus, you are like Jesus to other people. You're not, just to get it clear, you're not God. You're not Jesus to other people, but you're like it. You're revealing God to others. And this is what Pharaoh was doing. Pharaoh was simply, I mean, sorry, Moses. Moses was simply revealing who God was simply through his obedience. So through his obedience, he reveals who God is. And what I want to say to you is that when you're obedient to God in your life, then God is freed up to bless you and to use you. When you're disobedient to God in your life, God is not free. He doesn't want to use that because it's a bad example, right? So when you're obedient, it's like when your kids are obedient, you're like, oh, they're so good. I'm going to take you to ice cream, <laughs> right? Like, 
for, this is just a, this is a dumb example, but for whatever reason, when my, both of my girls were at summer camp, my son was the best he's ever been. And we treated him like a king. It was awesome. We were like, we were, he was like just completely obedient to everything. We're like, it's bedtime. He's like, okay. Runs up to bed, falls asleep, and we're like, who is this kid? And, and we were like, as parents, we were freed up. We were like, we, we just want to bless this kid. This kid did, is doing an amazing job. And so like we did special things with him. And, and, and it's like when you're obedient to God, it's the same way. He, he's freed up to bless you. And this is what Moses was. He was obedient to God, walking into the highest power in the world at the time, saying, let all your completely free labor reserve go. That, that would, would not go well in other countries, by the way. You're regularly put to death in other systems for less than this. But God, Moses was obedient to God. And God was freed up to bless him. And then, so let me, I'm going to jump real quick before we get into the plagues to the very last plague. Exodus 12, 12 is a very, very, very key scripture in all of the book of Exodus. It turns out to be one of those linchpin scriptures that help you get even the very first commandment. It says this, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both of people and animals, and I will bring judgment and all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. So what happens is Moses goes there and, and he's telling Pharaoh like, hey, you got to let the people go or else God's going to bring judgment on you. And what we learn at the end of the plagues is what the judgment actually is about is about the judgment of the gods of Egypt. That's what, the, that's what God says. And again, this pays huge dividends as you go forward a couple chapters because what's the very first commandment? Have no other gods before me, right? I, I'm the top. This is what God says. So Pharaoh sarcastically asked Moses, who is Yahweh that I should listen to his voice? Who is this one? And his answer comes in this series of horrible plagues. And what Exodus 12, 12, 12 tells us is that these plagues were aimed at Egypt's gods. Before we look at these gods, I'm a little afraid that when, even when I'm talking about this right now, that we are all sort of um, just entrenched in something called American rationalism that has happened in, a, in, a, uh, in our education system over the last two, 300 years. We're also entrenched in something called materialism, and you don't even know it, right? Rationalism and materialism. Materialism says it only exists if you could touch it and feel it. That's what materialism says. Not materialistic like, oh, I like to buy stuff off Amazon. Not like that. Materialism is like things only exist if I could touch them. Well, you know, so then the unseen realm doesn't exist. Then there's no angels, there's no demons. There's no, okay, you can't see and touch those. Well, do your thoughts exist, if that's true? I can't touch my thoughts, right? So materialism, we're, we're kind of entrenched in that. And then rationalism, it's like, well, there has to be a, a rational explanation for all these sorts of things. So when they're talking about gods, it could just be these little plastic, or not plastic, they didn't have uh, CNC plastic or machinery. They didn't have a, they could have these little clay gods, you know, the little things of tin and metal. That's what their gods were. Their gods had no real power. But that's not what the Bible thinks. 
See, we think that because we're 21st century Americans and statistically, we're smarter than everyone else. That's sarcasm, by the way. We're not. <laughs> and, and we're materialistic, not in the Amazon way, but more in the, it, it only exists if I could touch it and see it and feel it. We're materialistic and we're rationalistic. And that's the way that our education has been structured since the Enlightenment. It's just, you go back to the history of education, that's the way it is. And so we read things like this, that God is judging the other gods, and we're like, oh, okay, whatever, we'll just skip past that. But the reality is that the Apostle Paul said, hey, do you know that we don't battle against flesh and blood? But we battle against powers and principalities and dark forces, like, do you get that there's a whole unseen realm out there? Do you get that? So what I want to do is break down for a second, and this is just a small, small, small breakdown of what the unseen realm was, like what, it would, what you would have understood as a Hebrew being in this situation where these plagues are happening, right? And understanding the judgment of these gods, who are the gods of Egypt? What is God talking about here? So I want to turn our attention now to Psalm 82. And Psalm 82 is one of those psalms that, like, if you're reading the psalms, you read this psalm and you're like, ah, I'm just going to skip over this. This is too weird. I love those psalms. I love, I love the parts of the Bible that people are like, I'm going to skip this. I don't like it. That's my favorite parts of the Bible. <laughs> God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals." You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Weird? Anybody? A little weird? Yeah. Slightly weird psalm. Totally get it. Because what it's saying here is that God presides in a great assembly and there's other gods beneath him. And so you might get the impression of reading this psalm that, that the Bible is uh, not monotheistic. But the reality is that the Bible is absolutely monotheistic. It sees the, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit as one God and the only God. The problem is that there's this word called Elohim, which we translate as God, but it also translates as spiritual being. And we know that word is used interchangeably in the Bible numerous times, Elohim, either for God, um, either talking about Yahweh God or sometimes talking about spiritual beings or something like that. And so the idea and what I want you to understand is this is called the divine council worldview. And people are just sort of like waking up to this reality right now as they read their Bibles. Like there's a lot of scholarly work being done in this area to help us understand what the worldview was in the Bible. So let me just give you this, this brief breakdown. In Psalm 82, it shows that these other Elohim, these other gods are responsible for all this sin, oppression, the cause of, you know, how long will you not take up the cause of the fatherless? It's like these spiritual beings are also responsible for sin. It's like, yeah, Adam and Eve, totally, 
absolutely responsible for sin, but just as there was a human rebellion, there's a divine rebellion. Way back in Genesis and the Table of Nations, God takes these Elohim and he puts them over the nations. And so what's happening in God's perspective in Egypt is that the Elohim or the spiritual beings that he puts over the nations, some of them rebelled. And apparently Egypt was a rebellious nation. And so now God is going to judge the gods of, the, of, of uh, Egypt. And that's what's called the divine council worldview. And I realize that for some of you, I may have just breezed over that and lost you. But the idea is that the unseen realm is real. This is, they would have seen this as real. God would have seen this as real. Moses would have seen this as real. They would have seen real dark powers behind Pharaoh. Not just like our 21st century American materialistic rational view. They, They wouldn't have seen that. They would have seen real dark power. So when God, when it eventually says in Exodus 12, 12, that God is judging the Elohim of Egypt, he's saying for 400 years, these gods ran amok in Egypt. But now I will take control back over my people. I will govern Egypt on, on, on these gods' behalf because these gods are being kicked out. And I realize that for some of us, this is brand new, um, but this is totally common knowledge in the Hebrew Bible community. So we'll, if you have questions about it, feel free to email me. I email you resources and stuff like that. Um, but let's, let's talk about some of these plagues. So in the pantheon of Egypt, in the God structure of Egypt, Pharaoh is the divine representative of Amon-Ra, the, the sun god. He was the image on earth of Amon-Ra. He was the son of God, right? And in order to see these plagues rightly, one of the things that we have to do is go back to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4 says this, And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. God sees Israel as his firstborn son, right? So is God and his son, Israel, doing battle against Amon-Ra, the sun god, and his son, Pharaoh? Do, do, you, get, do you smell when I'm stepping in here? Do you, are you picking up what I'm putting down, right? This whole business is now this cosmic battle between the Egyptian gods the, 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 the Pharaoh and, 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 and Amon-Ra and Yahweh and his son Egypt. And in case you're not picking up what I'm putting down, to be very clear, there's another very important moment in the Bible where God and his firstborn son will triumph over all the spiritual powers in the world. And he'll take his throne, his seat of power on the cross And in that moment, what happens on the cross, the whole business of sin and death, it gets dealt with by the son of Yahweh. What's happening, the reason why we're spending two weeks on the plagues is because what is happening in the plagues sets up Jesus on the cross. That's what's happening. Sin has to be dealt with. And this is the way God's dealing with it in Egypt. Sin has to be dealt with. These other rebellious spirits have to be dealt with. The whole story of the plagues is a prototype for what's to come. And God will constantly do this in the Old Testament. He will set it up to show them Jesus. 
So when Jesus comes, it's like, whoa, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this. So what I'm going to do, last week I spent more time on each plague, and I feel like most of you got it. And if you didn't, go back and rewatch last week, and we'll, I'm going to just breeze through the plagues this week. Because the idea wasn't that each plague specifically lines up with a God. The idea is that the way that God did the plagues deals with the entire system of God's. And I feel like uh, every Egyptian would have known this. Every, um, every Hebrew person would have known this. They, they're immersed in the culture. So the Nile, and, and in Egyptian cosmology, anything that moves has divine power. So like wind and river, uh, they're divine power. So Happy or Apsis is the bull god of the Nile. Isis was also a god of the Nile. Kanun was a ram or guardian of the Nile. And so when God turned the water to blood, he broke the power of these three deities. Now, there were some people that were able to replicate that, right? Was it a sleight of hand, like the water was already blood, or they replicated the frogs too? It's like, well, there was already a trillion frogs in the land, so maybe they like threw a couple in their pockets and were like, whoa, look what we did, you know? You, we don't know how they did it. Or are there still dark powers at play? I don't know. But frogs... Hakwit is the goddess of birth, and its head is a frog. Now for the next ones, flies, gnats, uh, livestock, boils, hail, locusts, there are a number of Egyptian gods that fit the bill here. Uh, Set, the god of the desert. Uh, another god's name I can't pronounce, I'm not even going to try, his picture is a fly. Nut, the sky goddess. Osiris, the god of crops and fertility. Isis, the god of healing. And then there's the plague of darkness. And these last two plagues are really where I want to spend time. Exodus 10 21 through 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. Have you ever been in darkness that could be felt? So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and told darkness covered all of Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. What? So the main god of Egypt is this sun god, Amon-Ra. Pharaoh is the divine son of Ra. And every night in Egyptian cosmology, what happened during a sunset, and as you guys watch the sunset, you think about this, is that as the sun goes down, it's doing battle with darkness and death. But every day as the sun rises, Amon-Ra is victorious. So every day at a sunrise, you would have a little mini worship service that your God was victorious over death. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? But for three days, this didn't happen. Do you see what God is setting up? Jesus in the tomb. For three days, this didn't happen. And for three days, the Israelites had light and the Egyptians had darkness. For three days, there was this total death and destruction of Amon-Ra, the sun god. But somehow, the Israelites had light. They were able to see. They didn't have to do anything. It's God's grace. They had to do nothing, and there was just light. Now, that's the plague of darkness, Exodus 11. And next week, we're going to spend some time on the Passover and fleeing Egypt. And it is just incredible. And I can't wait to unpack that with you. But for right now, Exodus 11, the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he'll let you go from here. 
God was pretty certain about this one. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord, and then in parentheses it says, the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So even though Pharaoh's heart was hard, the people and the Egyptians are starting to be favorable towards Moses. Why? Because they started to trust that this God was more powerful than their gods. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says about midnight. I'll go through Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slaves who's at her handmill, and the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be a loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But the Lord, but I mean, sorry, but among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me, saying, go, and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. So in the ninth plague, the plague of darkness, Pharaoh's defeated, his father's defeated. And now this plague comes straight for Pharaoh. Pharaoh's the firstborn son of the gods. Now, apparently he's not the firstborn because he doesn't die in this plague, but his son does end up dying in this plague. In the ancient worldview, the firstborn is the natural heir and leader to everything. He's the actual representative of the father. So if the father couldn't speak, then it's the firstborn that speaks. The firstborn speaks for the father. So in the Egyptian, Egyptian system, Pharaoh was all-powerful because he was the firstborn of Ra. That was the legend. So with this plague, Egypt is brought to its knees. And it's not Pharaoh that dies, but its son. And then this is where we get Exodus 12, 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. It's no wonder that God would take his people out into the desert and say, listen, I got these 10 commandments, and we're going to go over those. I got these 10 commandments, and the first one is that you shall have no other gods before me. You saw how that went for Egypt. I'm the God. I, I am your God. You're only God. So you have no other gods before me. I am the Lord. This is the plague of the firstborn. And all the gospels and all Paul's works and revelation and all that stuff. Jesus, by the way, is called the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is looked at as the one who is perfect representative of the Father. In fact, my favorite firstborn verse is in Colossians 1.15. So the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Everything about these plagues was done to show the power of Yahweh and his firstborn son. Everything sets up the coming of God's firstborn son, Jesus, who will triumph over the gods of this world on a cross. So you might be thinking, Pastor Dave, the idea of the gods is ancient history, right? It's, it's just ancient history. We don't have to deal with that today because, again, we're in America. We're 21st century America. Like, we don't have to deal with this. 
today. But let me give you a couple points that I think are very important to our culture here today, and I think things that you could take with you, take home with you today. Moses had to go into Pharaoh's court, and the next feeling is this. Moses was called to speak truth to the prevailing culture. I can't imagine Moses' position of having to go into Pharaoh's court and say hard things. I can't imagine that. But because he was obedient to God, he went in and said hard things. He dealt with the gods of Pharaoh. He had to be a truth teller. And church, we do too. We have to be truth tellers. We have to live in truth. We have to speak truth. Now, the the Bible says like, first of all, do you guys know that the truth is offensive? (laughs) Because the truth in our context here is like, we're all sinners. We're all messed up and we need a savior. Like, you don't have to add to that offense, by the way. You don't have to add to it. A lot of times we like to add to the offense. We just have to let the scripture speak for scripture. That's what we have to do. We have to let the Bible speak for itself. And and the reality is, is we have to be these truth tellers to, to our society. And we have to live in the truth. And just like as Moses was like God to Pharaoh, we've got to be like God to our neighbors, our friends, and our family, and be truth tellers in that way. We don't have to add to the offense of scripture. It already is offensive. Like, you're, you're, we're sinners, we're messed up, we need a savior. That's offensive. But it's true. Moses refused to live into Pharaoh's lies. He refused to be capitulated into Pharaoh's culture. Moses stood firm and fast with the truth of God. Church, you're called to embody the love and truth of Jesus in this world and not to fall in love with the lie that our world loves. That's what you're called to do. Scripture says to speak truth in love. Like, I love how, that's in Ephesians, I love how it says speak truth in love because there's a lot of harshness to truth sometimes, and you could be really harsh with people, and it could completely turn them off from the Scriptures. Could completely turn them off from following Jesus. But when you speak truth in love, you draw them in. Because you're loved, because God is love, and that's what you're called to do. Next, lastly, well, I don't know if this lastly, I got more to say. I always have more to say. (sighs) My poor wife. Moses was called to confront the prevailing culture of false gods. I'm not trying to create a straw man argument here. Because people, believe, people might believe this is no longer relevant. The ancient idea of gods is just an, a relic of ancient superstitions. Really? Is it really a relic of ancient superstitions? Or is there like a full unseen realm happening and unfolding before us? And if we just had eyes to see, could we see that? What powers do you think are really in charge? There's a number of cults living all among us that you would have no idea as a cult, but they're definitely religions. The cult of hypersexuality, where everything is seen through the lens of sex and where the fullness of your, of your life could be found in your expression of that sexuality. That's essentially a worship of self. The dogma of hypersexuality, people believe that fulfilling your sexual desires leads you to the good life or the highest or truest version of yourself. This is just a a false God. And I don't care if you're part of the pride crowd or the promiscuous crowd. Sex is a religion 
I'm not making this up. It's all over the news. It's all over our culture. And it's also a truth that, by the way, is now unquestionable. You're not allowed to question it. There's a moral code that you have to buy into or be ostracized. In ancient Egypt, the god of men did that, by the way. I mean, there's ancient, there's darkness behind this because the reality is that, there's, that you will never get fulfilled in sex. You will only be fulfilled by your creator. You will only be fulfilled by what Jesus has done for you on the cross. So you can't find your identity in all that. And I don't care what it is. The cult of mammon or money. I mean, mammon literally is an ancient god that we still follow blindly today, right? Because the reality is what really matters is your net worth and your next asset and whatever you buy and how big your retirement account is. And if you could get that next truck or the, the jet ski or whatever, quite literally the ancient God of mammon is essentially that material success defines who you are in this world. That's an ancient system. Like, I'm not making this up. You could go back in time a 2,000 years and find people worshiping at the feet of mammon. Absolutely. It's just not called mammon today. It's just not called men today. It's just called something else. Has worship of money reduced in recent years? I, I don't think so. I think we have a problem with a society that's obsessed with the false god of money, the false god of sex. There's a cult of power. And this is the cult of Pharaoh, by the way. Pharaoh was the political power of his day, political control. He was the hand of the gods. In recent years, we've secularized what power looks like. But that wasn't that way for many, many years. We've secularized what power is. But power is absolutely worshipped. And every four years, in America, we go crazy, don't we? with the lust of power for our side. We go crazy with this. We want power, we want control, we want ide our ideology, we, we, we wanna keep our grasp on it. And this is Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the cult of political power. He's a political religious figure. Like this is just part of our world today. You know it's true because you see it every single day. And we fall at the at feet of our God's of either an elephant or a donkey or whatever it might be. We fall at the feet of these gods and we worship them. There's real other gods at play in our culture and TV. But even more dangerously, there's this more subtle God. It's the cult of you. This is the, the worst God out there. It's the cult of you. And oftentimes, this, this shows itself in the self-help Christianity movement. There's this therapeutic, moralistic form of Christianity that exists to help you be, feel better about yourself. Not necessarily to become a disciple of Jesus, but just to feel good. Right? But the real idea of Christianity is about dying to yourself. It's about having to walk through the waters of death because salvation is at the other side. It, 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 that's what it's about. It's not about affirming yourself and feeling good about yourself. It's about saying, God, I, I'm wrecked. I need you to deal with me. I need you to make me new. God, I need you to deal with my sin and, and make me new. It's not about feeling good and pretending to be great and all that stuff. It's not about just rooting out a couple of anxieties you might have. It's about fully laying your life down for Jesus. 
But the cult of you, the cult of me, says, no, I want to have power. I want to have control. I want to be significant. I want to have it all. And you set yourself up as your own God, even when you come and worship Yahweh on Sunday mornings. You set yourself up as God. And that is the most difficult place to be because God had 10 plagues for another guy who did that same thing. We need to step off of our thrones. So today, I want to lead you in communion. And I want to ask, Desiree, would you bring me my communion cup? I forgot to bring it up. As we go towards this time of communion, I want to invite you to examine what other false gods, thank you, are in control of your life, are in control of society. What other false gods have we bowed down to? Because the scriptures are clear. Let there be no other God but me. I am before all these gods. I I am over it all. Psalm 82 says God presides over all the unseen realm and he judges it. God is in control. God and his son did power, did battle in Egypt and God and his son did power, or did battle over the whole earth by going to the cross and judging the powers that be. So through it all, there's a king's table. And the king invites us to his table. And that king is Jesus. And, and, and really, this would have synced up so much better if we were on Passover week, which is next week, but that's okay. Jesus is at that Passover meal, and he takes this bread And this bread symbolizes in so many other forms his own life, his own body. And he says, I'm going to take on the sin. I'm going to deal with the powers that be. I'm going to take the battle for you. Take and eat. This is my body. So he invites us now to take and to eat. And then that same night, he takes the cup. And he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. I'm going to be your God. I'll be with you through thick and thin. I'm going to forgive you and make you new. It's a new covenant in my blood. It's a new promise that I have for you. So what I'll say to you today is like, if you you need to renew that promise, maybe it's just by drinking this cup. We do this as a symbol, a reminder of who God is. That God wants to bring you fully into his kingdom and be Lord over your life. Drinking this cup is about laying your life down. It's about fully dying to self. It's about saying, I'm not God, you're God. That cult of self, deal with it in me, Lord. So take and drink. Jesus wants a covenant relationship with you. He wants to deal with the sin in your life and he wants to make you new and bring you to a new place in life where you fully worship him and not the gods. So my prayer today is break the power of the influence that the unseen realm has in our world today. Within our own lives. Because as Christ followers, the one who should only worship Jesus, we, we see this all the time. We, get, we go down these rabbit holes. We get stuck. So maybe you need to pray that today. God, break the power of all these powers in my life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you did battle with Pharaoh and that you came out victorious. And 
God, that you sent your son and did battle with sin and came out victorious. You defeated the powers of death. And God, we know that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against dark forces and spiritual beings. God, it is not over between people. So Lord, I pray that you would break the power that sin and darkness has on our lives. God, if there's anybody here who, who's, who's kind of fallen victim to worshiping at these other cults of religion, that we would drop that at your altar and confess that and say, Lord, we want to follow you only in all your ways because truth is uncomfortable, but it is so good. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your redemption. We thank you for making people new. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the River's Edge Church podcast with Pastor Dave. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that God has touched your heart through today's message. Please leave us a review and share with your friends. For more information about the ministries of REC, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. See the links in the description.